Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Doors of Portland. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving West Portland out to Hillsboro, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we're honored to welcome Jim Passero and Alan Alley of the radio show Abrams, Alan, and Passero. We did not invite Mark Abrams because he's a Democrat. We don't like him. <laughs> uh, Alan, or, Alan, we should think about that when we do our show. Yeah, or we try. We, we keep changing the time, but somebody keeps telling him and he keeps showing up. He keeps getting CC'd on the emails. <laughs> no, no. Also, we only have four microphones. So, sorry, Mark. Um, so, I just want to give you guys a little bit of opportunity, if you could, maybe 60 seconds of who you are and your political resume real quick for the uh, for the listeners. Jim, do you want to get started? Yeah, I I grew up here and my father was a sports uh, legendary sports columnist and he thought I should go into sports, so therefore I ran back east and went into politics. <laughs> and uh, worked uh, – the, the biggest job I had was the um, head speechwriter of the Republican Party in the 92 uh, campaign where George H.W. lost for re-election. And then in 96 – I came back, I moved back home and I ran for the legislature. And I tell people this and they never believe it, but I learned a lot more about running for politics, running for the state legislature and losing than I did as the head speechwriter of the, uh, of the party in a presidential campaign. And that was in my district, right? That was in your district. Yeah. And so that's, so therefore, wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So therefore I'm watching you and, uh, <laughs> voting for you and, uh, you know, if I could, if I could be out annoying neighbors and knocking on doors for you, I would be. I appreciate that. You couldn't have worked a little harder in 1992. Well, we uh, we had a lot of issues. Perot. I mean, it was an amazing year. It was the first year of cable news. We had Perot. We had Cuomo not deciding not to run. We had all the Bill Clinton stuff. We never thought Bill Clinton was going to win. We never thought he was going to win, and we just and we were stunned. Actually, well, as a as a pseudo Texan, I lived there for ten years. Ross Perot was always a bit of a blight. But that's I've you you all have read. I'm assuming the Ben Kramer What It Takes book, the big. 1988 story. It's, well, if, if y'all ever get a chance, listeners, if you're ever looking for something to do, i.e. it's quarantine and nobody's going anywhere for the next <laughs> two months, it's like a thousand pages, but it's a great story of the 1988 presidential election, all the, the main characters. And I'd love to see a version of it on 1992 because just with that curveball of Ross Perot and then he's out and then he's back in and everything, that was such an only, interesting election. He's the only man in American history who was going to win the presidency. And then quit the race because he didn't want to be president. This is yeah. pretty extraordinary. He, well, I, said, ran, I ran against a guy that didn't want to be governor. <laughs> Chris Dudley. <laughs> he wanted to be the governor, but he didn't want to, to necessarily govern. govern. Yeah, we were very different in, in our outlook on that. I drafted him in fantasy basketball. I drafted him in fantasy governors. Did you really? He (laughs) failed me both times. Fantasy governors. There you go. (laughs) Well, Alan, you want to give a 60-second who you are? I know you've been on the podcast one other time, but we only... Yeah, mostly, you know, business guy, mechanical engineer from Purdue, Ford, Boeing, 
got into computer graphics a long, long, long time ago. Some of my friends went on to found uh, gaming companies because we were doing computer image generation stuff at Boeing. And out of that came some of the, the early, early gaming companies. And I got into computer graphics and then high technology, software, semiconductors, and uh, came out here in 92. Uh, venture capitalist, had been investing in growing companies for 30-some years or so, and then got involved in politics. Uh, got to work for Governor Kulingoski as his deputy chief of staff, and when he called me, he said, Alan, I'd like you to come and work for me. I said, well, you need to know something. I'm a Republican and you're not. <laughs> and he said, that's okay. I need somebody that understands business, and I need somebody that understands technology. And it was like, wow, this is refreshing. <laughs> and it, it was a great experience. Uh, went on and ran for treasurer, lost in a three-way race, and then um, was chairman of the Oregon Republican Party and ran for governor a couple times. Didn't get through the primary, um, but have been very passionate about sort of taking business experience and life experience and then after working in the governor's office, seeing what somebody with that kind of background could bring to the state and, and working in the governor's office, you get a really neat overview of, of what you could do. It was a, it was a great experience. I, I love to contribute however I can. I know we, I said before we started this, I was going to talk about coronavirus, but now that you kind of, you kind of got me. Now we're going to do something no. completely different. <laughs> um, well, we talked about it a little bit during the uh, Abrams and Pacero, Abrams Alley and Pacero show that we just got finished recording, which will air this weekend about how, uh, how a business mindset can be beneficial to politics and that how we have economists and we have doctors and we have presidents and leaders and governors who are making decisions. And I've said this, um, I believe on the podcast before, but if I was the president, I don't think I would let Fauci in front of the camera. I would have all my advisors advising and then come out and make a decision and like, that that's that's how I kind of would would have a have a public facing um, that thing. So you have doctors who are making medical decisions, and you have economists who make economic decisions, and both of those then need to be advising the person who then makes the decision. In you my know, opinion, I, I've thought a lot about this, and the the soundbite that I say is, I want doctors making medical decisions, not politicians. And right now, I have politicians making those decisions. So if I was in a leadership role, what I want to do is push decision-making authority down to the people that are closest to the problem, so to cities and counties. And then I want individual doctors making those decisions. And this is – we talked about it on the last show. Um, in Oregon, 101 people have died. 99 of those people had some underlying condition. It just came out from the OHA yesterday. And that underlying condition is serious. Heart disease, kidney failure, uh, diabetes. The two that died with no underlying conditions, their average age was 91. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So wh what I want is doctors armed with that information to be able to say to people that are in their care, if you're going through dialysis... Your doctor should say, Nick, you're going through dialysis. You're super <laughs> high home. risk, buddy. Yeah. You got to stay home. You got to stay gowned up. You, If anybody comes in contact with you, I want to know who it is. Do not get near people that have been exposed, right? So 
I think we can absolutely come out of this, but we've got to get the decisions pushed down to a much, much lower level, not at the stratospheric level where things are being done. Well, and I, uh, even beyond that, I think it just, we've obviously got plenty of time to go out for nice walks. It's springtime here in Oregon. The weather's starting to get nice. And my wife mentioned was like, you know, obviously, like everybody, I'm excited for when we can start opening back up. We can start going out to restaurants, going out to a brewery and get a beer, you know, hanging out with your friends, game night, whatever. But she says, I'm still worried that, you know, if if somebody's around my parents and they're sick or if somebody's around, you know, if you work at a hospital and then, you know, we're friends with a lot of nurses, you come out and hang out with us. And I said, at some point, you've got to trust individual people. She and I are just hanging out. If we go out to Breakside and get a beer tomorrow, the world's not going to end. We're not in any likelihood of getting any sicker. But if we were living at home with her parents, now it's like, okay, maybe that's something you got to kind of weigh in. And it's it's weird because everybody's looking for an exact specific set of guidelines and an exact specific timeline at which we can do these things. And at the end of the day, you have to be able to trust people to some extent to take the information that's available and decide if they should be going out or not. Well, I keep uh, looking, waiting for a politician, whether it's the president or the governor, somebody to say, and I think the president comes closer than Governor Brown, that I'm not responsible for keeping you alive. I'm responsible, you know, if you're Governor Brown, I'm responsible for making sure that Oregon doesn't break down. You know, mm-hmm. that the hospitals work and the food supply work and, and the economy works and we survive. I'm not responsible for you individually. And because government can't, a, a lot of people are amazed at the way we're just sort of sheep-like looking for government to tell us what to do. And, and in every crisis, when, when a generation, and every generation gets challenged, and in every crisis when a generation gets challenged, government doesn't decide everything. You know, the, the, the public, the culture has to be healthy enough to make good decisions too. Well, I darn, I mean, I think that's what, that's what I was starting to get at and I wasn't doing it very well. That's why you have a real radio show. We broadcast to three dozen people. <laughs> I think that's, that's absolutely true. That's, we have abdicated personal responsibility and and in fact, nobody, nobody wants to accept that. It's like, it's like, I want the government to just tell me what to do. And this is why I was so heartened with the OHA mm-hmm. coming out with that data. And I'm really curious why they came out with it. Cause it's been buried in there for, for weeks. But basically, you guys can't die. It's like, it's, <laughs> I, this is what my, and, my and, man Mitch said. And, and basically, <laughs> it, they can't die. And basically, it's very, very, very low odds that you and I, right. healthy people in their 60s who walk a lot right. no. and, and exercise, can die too. Right. E- either. Right. And that's what Mitch Daniels said, my, my friend from Purdue, who's president of Purdue and former governor of Indiana. He came out this week and said, look, <laughs> the population of students at Purdue basically have a zero mortality rate. So given that I have a zero mortality rate in my student population, now when I get up into my professors and things, yes, there's some risks there, but I'm going to open my university in August, period. That's the message from Mitch Daniels. Now, y'all figure out how to do this, <laughs> but but we're opening in August, and we are going to protect those that are vulnerable but we owe it to our student body who wants to come back to this campus and wants to be educated. We owe it to that student body to open up. 
And it's about individual freedom too, like the freedom to choose for yourself how much risk you want to, you are willing to accept. And for Nick and I, who are in our 30s and healthy, I'm okay accepting a little more risk, being able to go out and do things and go to work and participate in the economy, whereas someone who is on dialysis or, or I don't know, even someone who's just more afraid who does not want to be as risky, you know, maybe they're going to, they have the choice to then either stay home or take other precautions or like that, that is your individual freedom. And that's, that's kind of the way I see it. When you're talking about Mitch Daniels at Purdue and I readers or listeners can't see, but you got the hat on. So that's go Boilermakers. But College kids are playing beer pong with little ping pong balls that roll through dirt and get bugs on them and then drink the Keystone anyway. If they can survive that, they're more than willing to take those chances. And it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and attend my civics class at 930 this morning. Well, and the question is, when is it not everybody skydives, right? Yeah. Not everybody wants to take that risk. Not everybody rides motorcycles, right? Yeah. Where do you draw the line? And that's a personal, that's a personal decision, but. The government does not want to create an environment that is not a safe environment for people. I think the data now is showing that the environment isn't as bad as we thought if you have certain protocols in place and people take personal responsibility to protect themselves. Yeah. And I think the government can step in. I put this on my my campaign Facebook page as well. The government, I, I see the government's role in this thing of taking as if coming and taking a step to limit behavior if you get to the point where you're overwhelming hospitals because that's when the mortality rate goes from 0.2% to 1% or something and you know if you have people are at risk who who catch the disease who are have to go to the hospital who are then unable to get that care because we're out of ventilators or we're out of ICU space that's when the collective's decisions have started affecting the individual I think up until you get to that point, I, I would, I would be very, I would very strongly start to reopen, take steps in Oregon, especially in Oregon, where we have one of the lowest infection rates per capita of the entire nation. Take, start taking those stage one, phase one, whatever the terminology is. Take those, start taking those steps to start reopening the economy. And a, a lot more work needs to be done on treatment because it might, my friends that are in the business, and you guys know this, I've been working on antibody testing for the last five weeks and getting antibody tests in here and what we can do with them. So I've been very, very close to it. One of the things that's coming out is the average age in Oregon of people that died is 77. You take anybody that's 77 and put them on a ventilator, they don't generally come back off. The, mm. the, the death rate is like 90-some percent. Wow. Because you go on a ventilator as at last, last possible thing. We can't do anything else. We're going to put them on a ventilator. When you go on a ventilator and you have pneumonia, what they do is they put the tube in, they knock you out. You're basically in a in, sleeping. And then they give you antibiotics because pneumonia can respond to antibiotics. When you go on a ventilator with COVID, it's not antibiotics. It's just keeping them alive for a while. And hopefully the antibodies in your body will fight this thing off. It's very, very different than going on with pneumonia. Another one is hydroxychloroquine. You know, it's been the... It, Trump <laughs> it's, talked it's about a meme. it. It's a meme at this tank. point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if you saw it. 
I knew this was going on because we were working with OHSU. OHSU has now kicked off a clinical study of the effects of hydroxychloroquine. And they're going to do a rigorous study on it. And once and for all, we're going to finally know, is there any statistical significance to hydroxychloroquine being a successful treatment for this? We need more work like that. We need more testing as well. I got a question for you. So I was reading, or actually uh, Netflix came out with a uh, explained whatever on on uh, coronavirus, and one of the things that they pointed out is that a lot of other other coronaviruses yes. that cause the common cold antibodies only stay in your body for one to two years, and so there is a potential that antibodies for this coronavirus also only will only last a year or two. In which yep. case, this could be a an annual event from now until forever. Yeah, the which- problem is. <laughs> It's not there's, a beer. There's no way that didn't get on the. On the <laughs> well, air. It's not it. enough, so we we'll just cut it out. We just cut it out. Yeah, Magic you know, radio. You cut it out. That was great. <laughs> it was funny. Um, yeah, yeah. So go ahead. So nobody knows how long the antibodies last. Uh, nobody knows. I mean, this gets into really, really wonky things. That are the antibodies that are detected by the tests actually the antibodies that kill the virus. Or are they just antibodies that sort of appear in response to the virus? There's all these things that we just don't know. But what we do know, and that's for sure, and this is what these antibody tests can do. If you test positive with the antibody test, what that means is you have, you are having a reaction to the virus. Either you had it or you have it. And we can get a handle on how broad the spread of the virus is in our community. My friend Jimmy here, he had the virus. There is, there is no doubt that he had, I sat with him at lunch when, when the virus hit him. And then February 5th, he so graciously hopped in my car and your cars, <laughs> your car. Tell him what kind of car you have. Was it the smart car? Yes. Yeah. So we're in the smart car that needs to be and quarantined. And Jimmy's hacking and wheezing and, and, and it's not radiating a, it, heat off his body. I mean, it was like, so yeah. we probably both have had it. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. And no, I, you, you absolutely have. Well, I had all the symptoms too. I had all the, I had the racing heart and the fever for, for three or four days and the, and the last shortness smell. of breath. Yeah. And the, yeah. I had all the, all, I got the whole package. Yeah. And it took the about, full meal deal. It, it took about three to six weeks, but I was only, but I never, like the 98%. I mean, it was just, it was just like I could hear my mother's voice. It was just the dumbest flu because after the fever broke, I felt better. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't feel better for 11 days. Right. I just sat in a chair, you know, and just kind of cooked a cheeseburger and had a whiskey and didn't, you know, and, and that was it. I do that when I'm not sick. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just like, I just, the duration of it. And, and all I could right. think of when I was having it was there was this sort of pit in my lungs. And I just thought, oh, if I move, I'm going to get, if I try to do anything real strenuous, I'm going to get pneumonia. But, but otherwise, you never thought it was COVID nineteen. I no. Well, I you told me on the way home from lunch when I was doing that you got the coronavirus, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, right, because there had been well, like see, three cases reported in well, in, I, in, in, in in Oregon or something. I'm pretty time. sure I had SARS mm-hmm. because I was traveling extensively in China at that time. And I came back from China and same thing, went down hard. I mm-hmm. went down to a, um, a guest bedroom that we have and I was in there for three days and my wife didn't see me. I, I drank fluids and that was it. And then I kind of got better and, you know, came out of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had so, I had SARS. So what we can do with these antibody tests is we can, like you said, you can see how how much it's spread throughout the community, and then we can have data like the actual fatality rate <laughs> right. and. You know, is this at one percent of the population, or ten percent, or is it sixty percent? Have have there been that many cases that are, you know, with no symptoms that this is already spread through the community, right. and which point we have we're we're getting toward the point of herd immunity. Well, and something we're not talking about herd immunity here in Oregon, or I don't know anywhere in the United States. Sweden is Sweden premeditatedly is. Is trying to achieve herd immunity. What do you make of the the reaction that the media is now? You know, you you, you go to CNN now, and it's like, oh, the Swedish way is, is failing. Well, you look at the data out of Sweden, and the data out of Sweden does not support that it's failing. The data supports that it's working, but they don't want it to work because if if Sweden's right and the rest of the world is wrong, we really doinked up. I mean, the the entire world doinked up. And my, my position is, look, I don't, I don't care. We were dealing with insufficient data at the time when we made decisions. We as a global, you know, people made these decisions. That's fine. You know, we'll get, we'll get through that. But dear Lord, <laughs> now that we have the data, please remove your head from the place where you've inserted it. Look at the data and let's make some decisions about reopening the global economy safely and efficiently. Well, the other thing about Sweden, so I mean, if you take the herd immunity approach, then by necessity, everyone needs to get sick, which means you're going to see these inflated numbers compared to those of us on lockdown, just because that's what you do to get herd immunity is everyone needs to catch it. Um, I'm curious about the population density, because you're seeing these hotspots like New York City for like the the big example. Everybody is so close to everybody else that this, that the R value of this thing is so high. I mean, the, the, the reason is that everybody interacts with everybody on the subway and just Manhattan is a very tight place. You interact with a whole bunch of people. I, I don't know much about Sweden, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're not that densely populated. I mean, population is, is more spread out. Probably. So you're not going to have, it's not going to spread as quickly and you, you probably won't get to that point where you're overwhelming the medical system. Well, I think, you know, our value is one thing and that's how fast it spreads. But I think somebody, I, I haven't seen this data, but there are opportunities for unique interactions that are unusual from people from diverse geographies. And, and what I mean by that is when Jim and I and Mark get together every Sunday, We've been together every Sunday way before this and, and so we're not a unique interaction, right? We've, we've exposed each other to whatever we have and, and in our daily lives, we expose each other to whatever we have. But when I go to, um, a Timbers game, I'm, I'm meeting people that I don't usually run into. If I take, uh, the subway in New York, there's so much interaction. I'm not always on the same car with the same people. You get a lot of people from these different geographies that there's this factor of these unique interactions that would cause it, especially if it's very contagious, would cause it to spread in different ways. But if I'm going to work every day and I work with exactly the same people and they go home and see exactly the same people in their families, that's way less risky than if I fly to England and go to a Manchester United soccer game, 
right? That's the worst. Hmm. I've done poker a couple of times since coronavirus started, and I the first time my wife read me the Riot Act, and that was exactly what I said. I said, I played cards with these same guys a week ago before the lockdown started. If they had it, they had it then, too, and right. then we went into lockdown, and now nobody's seen anybody else. If we're only seeing the same people, and I, you know, knock wood, I'm still here. But so I, I'd be curious for y'all's opinion on this. This is sort of post coronavirus looking a couple months ahead. Donald Trump has been, has been ragging on China since, since literally he rode down the escalator in Trump Tower and announced his candidacy. <laughs> this has kind of been a, a hobby horse of his. And this is a perfectly tailor made issue for him to just knock out of the park because, uh, you know, whatever shortcomings he's had, and he's had many, and I think any president would have had many given the rapidity with which one needed to respond and make decisions in this situation. But the level of dropping the ball that China exhibited on this one and allowed this infection to spread the whole, throughout the whole world. There's going to be a ton of opportunity for Trump to hammer that home from a politics standpoint and from a policy standpoint, I think, for the United States to reevaluate how it deals with China and how it deals with the countries that deal with China. Do you all have any kind of thoughts on that, on what's from a 35,000 foot view? What does that policy look like five, 10 years from now? So I've spent a lot of time in China, as you guys know. Um, the way human life is treated in China is very different than it is in the United States. I was in um, out near Nanjing or even Wuhan, it was out in that general area. And we're driving along, sun's coming up, new road, and there's a truck and it's picking up like dead things. It, it looks like deer or something. And it turns out it was bodies of people that had come out, peasants that slept on the road at night. And then uh, the trucks would hit them and kill them and they'd pick them up. And this is something they did every day. Well, I tell you that story and I can see it on your faces. It's like, that's not, po that can't possibly, that's China. That's the reality of a billion peasants. So when you have a virus like this break out, I would imagine they have some strange virus break out in China two or three times a year. Hmm. And, and it's wiping out a bunch of people and they don't look at things the same way that we do. And the other thing that could have happened, <clears throat> this may have come out of a lab in China. You know, it, they they don't have the same protections. If you work in a lab in China, maybe you use the PPE a couple days in a row, right? You don't change it every single day. Maybe you don't shower between each one because they just don't think about it in the same way. Politically, does it open up an opportunity for Trump to hammer China again? Absolutely. I, I, I don't think there's any question about that. So I just got finished running, reading the, uh, 100 year marathon. The, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but it's talking about China policy over the last 40 years and basically how they are the, well, the 100 year marathon refers to the time between 1949 and 2049 when the Chinese Communist Party is trying to overtake the United States as the global superpower and how and it's much more detailed than that. Just read the book. It was very interesting. Uh, but um, I don't have to now. You just told me about <laughs> that was it. The, that was, the, that was the, it. Cliff's notes. Yeah. Um, but just looking and then, again, it's one, one guy's perspective who's worked in China policy for a while. Uh, did 
basically he paints China as the bad actor on the world stage and how they are, their goal again is to be the number one superpower and they will do it at any cost. And part of that is stealing IP and part of it is manipulating their currency and part of it is like spending their way into prosperity through GDP growth and through lack of, uh, of, uh, you know, the way they treat human life. And again, I, I, it, it seems to fit very well with the way things are going in the last, it's, this was written a couple years ago. So it was before coronavirus, before all this thing, all this kicked off. Um, but it seems to fit very closely with the way that China acts. Yeah. No, they, they absolutely do. And they have aspirations. They, you know, you go to China if you've seen the Great Wall of China mm-hmm. and it was built 1500 years ago to 2000 years ago and you look at it, it's the most inconceivable thing I've ever seen. And in China, there's this attitude like, well, 2000 years ago, we built the wall. We can do anything. Hmm. Right. I, th- I think, I think that, I think that when, th- when times are good, you know, as Benjamin Franklin warned us, you know, we, um, take, uh, we, we we look at our democracy and we take it for granted. And we take the role of the citizen's responsibility to build that democracy for granted. And we forget to teach that to the next generation. We've seen this in our schools. And so we do that too on a corporate level. That, you know, we forget we, we had We've been through this in the 19th century. We had terrible conditions in the mines. We had, we had a fire in a textile building in 1920 where we trapped 120 women and let them burn to death. You know, we, we put economic, the, our manifest destiny of America, we ran over the Indians because our manifest destiny was that America was going to do great things. And we did great things. And especially in World War II. So when, when China is becoming the next superpower, we have a whole, body of wisdom and knowledge about the excesses and the uh, of being a superpower and uh, and having a manifest destiny and we and 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 part of that should have been transferred from our corporate leaders to their communist corporate leaders and somehow as long as money was being made i mean you see this i mean shoe dog is i mean phil knight has done wonderful things but the attitude in the book is you don't have to look any further that book to see what the American corporate attitude about China was. And it was basically a panning dog because they were going to make so much money. And if the air was white, if the Hong Kong people didn't get, you know, forget it, just look the other way. You know, if they have, if they have a weird virus, you know, if they run over bodies, look the other way. And then all of a sudden you can't play football in Hudson Stadium and you go, I can't. <laughs> now I got to look. Now it's a problem. Now that sports aren't, aren't so happening. my first, my first trip to Taiwan was. 1982. And when I came home, I told my wife, Taiwan is going to sink into the ocean and all that will be left is an oil slick and styrofoam worms. Because it was just a rock off the coast of China where there was this manufacturing cacophony going on. It it was little tiny sweatshops just puking out crummy products everywhere. And then they got rich. And if you go to Taipei now, the air is clear, the streets are beautiful, it's much cleaner than Portland. It is way cleaner than Portland. It looks more like some modern version of Paris than than the miasma of yuck that has settled over 
Portland. So my, and what I've seen in, in mainland China is as economically more people are brought into the first world, as entrepreneurship has driven people, it is getting better. It, it absolutely is getting better. The air is getting cleaner. They went from coal plants to nuclear plants and they did it in like three years, <laughs> right? So it is improving. Is it improving fast enough? No. Do they understand about things like theft of intellectual property? And no, they don't yet. Do, has Donald Trump done good things highlighting that? Absolutely. And, and this virus, the people I'm working with that have the test are in China. Why? Because they had the virus eight months before we had the virus, and you need to have the virus to develop the test. And the test takes months to develop. So I'm an abject capitalist, that capitalism is going to drive people to work together and improve the quality of life for people all over the world in the United States and in China. So the question then that I have, I guess, is do we allow, we as American policy, do we allow China to just kind of go on their own path at their own pace or do we try to intervene? Because this is another thing that they came, that they put in the book is like, so what's the big deal if China becomes the next superpower? It's like, well, that becomes then the global culture, you know, then it, it takes away it. At, during our manifest destiny for all of the awful things that Americans did, there was always this underlying like Judeo-Christian values, respect for human life, these sort of things. They don't have that in China. And so, like again, not, not to make excuses for all the awful things that was done by America, but if China becomes that dominant world power, now we have Chinese culture and all of the things that come with that. And is that something that we as America should embrace or fight against or just let it go? Well, that's a big question. That's, the, the, that's a good the, question. The, I have some very good friends in China, and in fact, we we joke about creating our own country called Chimerica, <laughs> and it is it's it's very much based on sort of founding principles of America. It is smaller government, reliance on the individual, less regulations. Uh, people being able to make decisions about their own lives, and they absolutely want the same things. Great education for our kids, take care of the environment, um, but small, limited government. And uh, global trade, trading with people all over the world, you know, and, and I, I've had these conversations with, with people in China that grew up under Chairman Mao, saying things like, you know, I grew up under Chairman Mao, and sitting here talking to you about building a business together, it's as it's more inconceivable than me sitting here talking to the the Queen of England that I'm hmm. talking to an American businessman about building a business, a global business together, is literally more inconceivable than talking to the Queen of England when I was thirteen painting mouse slogans. So, capitalism. The, the, the economic forces that, that that brings to bear, I've seen have changed China far, far more than pointing missiles at them or anything else. And I actually think it's, that's the best way to deal with it. But we have been too soft. We have mm. been too soft on intellectual property, right? 
And there's a fundamental cultural divide on intellectual property that we need to educate them on and we need to show them that, look, you have to, the, the economic aspirations that you have are based on respect for intellectual property. They don't quite hmm. get that yet. Or at least are willing to throw it under the bus well, if they do. Well, and the other part is that I, I, I agree with a lot of what Alan said, but the, the other, but the counter part of my mind, you need, you have to earn democracy, you know, and you have to bleed for it. And every Demo almost every democratic nation, uh, maybe except Canada, you know? <laughs> are they <Those> democratic? <laughs> they, you I know, think they only broke away from England in like what the 1940s or yeah. something. Like, <laughs> they reluctant, they, reluctantly, they sort of got. Do we get have it. to do this on our own? Oh man, really? They still have the Queen of England you know, on yeah. the currency as well. And there's the and that and there's the the credit. You know, TM and Square. I was working on Capitol Hill at the time for U.S. Senator Dave Durenberger of Minnesota, and we were all, everybody, every office was watching the TV because all the Eastern European countries had fallen. And and so, you know, the hope that China was going to fall next. And then you read a generation later about how obedient the, the young people are. I, I, I think I sent you a, 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 a interview with a, a novelist from China who's a, somewhat of a dissident, uh, talking about how obedient the young people are because they, fought, they bought into the commercial dream. Hmm. And the and then so the, that that has been the trade, you know. You know, we're going to make you wealthy, and you'll do what we say. And so, well, so I, I'd be curious: Have y'all watched the HBO miniseries Chernobyl? I've heard oh, I've heard no. good things about. Uh, yeah. This is the ninth All, time Nick has yeah. brought this up yeah, on the podcast. This is nice. <laughs> I, I, I took out a wager on a book this in part. Vegas if I can make it twelve podcasts in a row. Podcast brought to you by <laughs> Chernobyl. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Can't pitch enough how good of a series that is. And I actually, just today, there's a different podcast that I listen to where they talk about movies and TV shows or whatever. And the guy was interviewing Craig Mazin, the person who did the, who wrote the show Chernobyl. And they were talking about in the episode of how it was a uniquely Soviet problem because so much ineptitude and so much ignorance was displayed at so many different levels. But then he also said it was also a uniquely Soviet solution and that Gorbachev made the decision and within an hour, buses showed up in Pripyat to drive the people away and that was it. They never got back to those. It's still a ghost land there. China has, they have no qualms stealing IP. They have no qualms running over bodies in the streets. Apparently yep. they have uniquely Chinese problems, but they have unique, chi uniquely Chinese solutions to be able to come up with these things. They, uh, we all saw the video on YouTube. Like it took a day and a half to build a thousand bed right. hospital or something like that. I think we have a uniquely American problem in that James to your question. It's not should we or should we not intervene? Should we or should we not do something about this? I, to me, I think the answer is clear. I think it's yes. I think our uniquely American problem is, do we have the stomach for that, though? Do we have the stomach to go to bat against people who value human life, who value intellectual property far, far less than we do, and get them to come to our way of thinking on some of these things? Because I think that's to get to the solution that we need, because so many people there do want this capitalism. So many people do want these success stories that we have that are unique to this country and this form of government. But I just don't know the way to do it. Yeah. You know, I, you know I've had these conversations with, um, with people in China, and most of the people in China that are my age, in their 60s, 
um, went to school here in the United States that are in leadership roles. So it usually starts out, hey, how are my Tar Heels doing? Oh, they're, <laughs> they're doing okay. Yeah. Um, so they understand American culture. They understand uh, um, America. They aspired to be like America. The next generation, they haven't come here to go to college quite as much. Um, so I'm, I'm worried that my generation kind of gets it and the next generation doesn't as much. Can I ask, did you see yeah. Tom Cotton saying we need to stop having Chinese students come no. here? They can study, you know, democracy and Ben Franklin, whatever, but we can't teach them STEM. Well, I'll tell you one thing. <laughs> this, right, when, when, uh, yeah. Obama and uh, Mitt Romney were debating about whether Iran had nuclear weapons, right? And being the old mechanical engineer, I talked to my friends at Purdue and they said, well, if they don't have nuclear weapons, it's an indictment of our physics professors because <laughs> they all went to school here, right? When they all took the classes, of course they have nuclear weapons, right? It's like, this is almost 100-year-old technology. It, it's It's... That, really it's inconceivable <laughs> that people would somehow believe that widespread nuclear weapons aren't out there in these developed societies. What they don't have is the nation state that can spend the money to build enough centrifugal gas diffusers to enrich uranium. Hmm. That's what takes money, and that's what takes technology. Building the bomb itself, not that big a deal. We did it, you know, 80 years ago or something, right? Yeah. It's, no. it's completely inconceivable. But I asked Chinese officials, I said, why don't you let people vote? And they said, well, because they're, they're like us. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, and they go, well, Alan, we have a billion peasants and we have 300 million people that are economically linked. What are we just going to turn everything over to those billion peasants and let them decide what we, to do we did that in portland well yes <laughs> but the second thing is they did turn around and say so alan yeah. <laughs> alan when did you guys let women vote how many years ago was it that you let women vote and 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 you know you think about the time frame yeah they, it was a hundred years we let women vote and then like two years later they did they banned alcohol well but <laughs> but the thing is is that what what they say is we're trying to manage this without the revolution, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Without the billion peasants burning the place down and right. starting over again. Yeah. I, you know, some of it I kind of get. Some of it I believe. Because what Chairman Mao tried to do is take 1.3 billion people and economically have them gain all at the same time. But when you take economic gain and spread it out over a billion three – over a couple of years, there's no difference. And in, and in the Cultural Revolution, he also murdered the intel 25 million of, the, absolutely. of what was the intelligentsia class, the professors. And he the, absolutely did. And my my friend – kind of and, ended dissent. And this is the weird part about the Chinese mentality. My friend that's my age, mm -hmm. I said, Mark, did you ever see people get murdered under Chairman Mao? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. You did? Oh, yes. My uncle, he lived in a town. And they went in and killed everyone in the town. How many people were in the town, Mark? Oh, 50,000. 50,000 people? Yes, but they were bad people. And, and, and it's like you can't, you know, the bodies on the road, 50,000 people wiped out. When he was in school, he spent his entire time painting moused slogans 
on banners that they would then hang up. They didn't do reading and writing and arithmetic. They would smuggle in textbooks into the kibbutz or whatever it was called to study. And Jim would become the expert in math and Nick would become the expert in science. And we'd teach each other so that then they could pass the college entrance exam by candlelight. And this is in the 1960s. Wow. So the, the whole concept of what China is, if, if you haven't been there and done it and been on the ground and worked with these people, it is, it is literally beyond your imagination. It's sort of like working in Salem. <laughs> it's kind of like when I worked in the governor's office. And maybe that's why I could relate because I worked in China. I worked in the governor's office. There's a good compare and contrast. There feature definitely there is. You know, you guys got me thinking about it. Interesting. Nick, you're talking about uniquely Soviet problems and solutions and kind of makes me think back again, back to coronavirus. Every time I say something online about trying to reopen the economy or taking a step toward reopening the economy, the number one thing I get pushback from those left of center is how many people are you going to kill to reopen the economy? How, like how many lives? Like, and, and people to the point where they're saying a single life is too many. We cannot sacrifice a single life to reopen the economy and get back to our, our center of living. And we, we as a society, as a culture, value human life to the point where that's a, that's a semi-valid argument. And the way, like, I don't know, what do you guys think about I, that? Where, I, where, so you had, where, you had the best comment ever on well, this. Well, yeah. What was your, what did you say off the air a couple weeks ago? Yeah. So my comment was 30,000 people a year die from traffic accidents in America. And if we wanted to reduce that to zero, all we had to do is put in a 15 mile an hour national speed limit. We as a society have already decided that the social social utility of driving at 65 miles per hour on the freeway is worth the 30,000 lives that it kills every year. But no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to acknowledge it. As a society, we still believe that human life is sacred, that a single life is not worth destroying for the sake of humanity. But in practicality, in reality, 30,000 lives is worth it to drive it on the freeway. And so in the coronavirus pandemic, there is a should be a number of lives that is an acceptable loss in order to, for to have the social utility of coming back to normal. But no one is willing to talk about it because we all just sort of collectively bury our heads in the sand and ignore that this is a part of American life. And you don't have to like it. I don't like it. But at the same time, to pretend that it doesn't exist is beyond ignorant. I think we suffer. So, I think we suffer from um, right now. Uh, people are specialists in everything, and, and they don't have a, a, a enough of a general education. A generation ago, Republicans and Democrats were just divided along ethnic lines. Hmm. I mean, it, it wasn't along business versus government. I mean, you, if you were an Italian or, or an Irish or Polish, you were a Democrat. You know, and if you were a wasp from the Midwest, Dwight Eisenhower, you were a Republican, and that's and that and that divided the parties, and 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 that plus the Civil War and that history. But now we what we have is a small business party with with the, with the corporate America kind of going along so they can get benefits, and, and and a government party, and these people in government are in control right now because we've had this once in a century situation and they know nothing about business or growing the economy or how hard it is to to make the the world work 
They have they don't they have no idea that when somebody starts a business like you have, mm-hmm. you save. You, you dream, you save for a year, a year and a half, two. You know, if it's a food cart, it's fifty thousand dollars. It's a lot of money, and you can get it wiped out. And government can come in and tell you you can't go to work, even though even though it, the death might be point oh oh three or something. You can't go to work, and you're shut down for three months, and and that dream's gone. And they yeah. ha- and they and their idea is just, hey, well, we might go negotiate, we might take like two percent less than our, our, we might get furloughed. We just heard it from our from our co-host and our and our radio show. We might get furloughed for a few days, but that's it. And then government will just print money. Mm. And that disconnect, you know, it's up to us in the business class to start asserting ourselves. Because I keep thinking of Dr. Fauci, you got to wash your hands fifty times a day. Well, we get through washing our hands fifty times a day, this economy is going to shrink by about seventy percent. You know. So, well, when I. When I worked in the governor's office, they'd ask me, you know, what did I do? And I'd tell them the story of starting my company. And, you know, five guys, 10,000 bucks, quit our jobs and started this semiconductor company. I'd tell them the story and then they go, you didn't do that. <laughs> and it's like, no, I, I, we really did. You quit your job. Yes, we quit our job. Well, how did you make payment? How did you pay for anything? How did you pay for your house? I said, well, we had saved <laughs> a little bit of money. And I went home and told my wife, you know, we got like 12 months. And if we really tighten our belt, if I don't make any income, I think we can go for 12 months. And if we can't, after that, we'll figure something out. Mm -hmm. And my wife and my kids said, Dad, we believe in you. And we know you want to do this and we'll support you. And they did. And you did the same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at James. You did the same thing. And it happens every single day, whether you've got a food cart or a hot dog stand or a repair shop or, you know, or you do what I did. And, and they, you're absolutely right. They have no conception. And the other thing that they have no conception. And they're making all the decisions right now. And the other thing is my son runs a bar, right? So he, he pays his cooks. He pays his bartenders. He pays the lottery. He pays his rent. He pays his heat. He pays his mortgage. He pays the repairs. He pays everything. And if there's something left over at the end of the month, he gets to keep it, except then he gets taxed on that. Right. Yeah. I talked and, and, but some months he makes nothing. Some months he makes enough to, to, you know, buy a couple of steaks and have a barbecue, right? I talked to a fairly prominent state legislator just the other day, and the person said, I can't conceive of the idea of risking your, uh, putting your house up to back your business. That would, I would never, I would never do that. So, well, you, you didn't read Shoe Dog. I mean, (laughs) after he got done doing that, made all the money, his wife, his wife punished him by always sticking $20,000 in her purse, just, (laughs) just to let him know what she went through. No, and that's, and that's the thing that brought people here to America. That's what brought my grandfather to America. Your your parents and your grandparents came here. It's the one thing that differentiates America from anywhere else. Because I'm telling you, it does not happen in Europe. It does not happen in any other place. The place where it started happening was in China. That entrepreneurs in China were, they figured out that if I can create these little pockets of entrepreneurship, I can actually make this happen. It does not happen in Japan. It Hmm. doesn't really happen in Korea, but it happens in America. And we, I'm so passionate about not losing that because that is what differentiates us from everywhere else. Yeah. And I, I took a train ride three years ago into Venice and I was with a, um, a 35-year-old Korean um, scientist who uh, worked for um, an iPhone company 
in, in Korea and he was going to go to Oxford and teach. And he was asking me, we were just strangers and we met and we were asking all this advice. And I was advising him and he finally said, well, what do you do? So you give me all this good advice. I said, well, I international economics studied back, back here for my reunion. And there was a 19 year old Chinese woman that walked across the thing and said, I'm so happy to meet you. I wanted to introduce myself. I too am studying international economics and I just mm. really wanted to meet you. And she'd been eavesdropping. And, and so I think about her when I know there's going to be a reaction uh, from the West about what China has done. And we want to do it in a way that, that we help, that helpful. We get our mesh, our message across, but we don't, we don't hurt her dreams. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd like to ask our guests, and I should have given you a heads up beforehand, oh, no. but, uh, who is your favorite Republican? Oh, mine's so easy. Mitch Daniels. There you go. Yeah. Uh, my favorite re- Republican. Oh, he's not really a Republican now, though. Oh, uh, Mitch? No, he had to re-register as an independent, but he was a Republican. Hmm. I, I he was a, elected. I a, he was yeah, elected as a there, Republican. He's in there. Yeah. He counts. I, I have I, I have a boring answer because I am the only. Re- I grew up in a de- Democratic family, and I'm the only Democrat who became a Republican in my family, and it, the reason was Ronald Reagan. Yeah, Sounds he good. too was a Democrat before he became a Republican. Yeah, worked out well for him. Who? So you've answered this on your show, but we don't know who is your favorite Republican. I think I went OG Abe Lincoln. Uh, oh. I thought you were about to say, I think I oh, am my favorite. No, 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 no. no, no, no. <laughs> I think that's who I, I said th- on I thought he was going to say that yeah, too. That's good. And no, Nick? A- Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's a good answer. I, I, to be yeah. perfectly honest, we've never actually had to answer this you question haven't? ourselves. You have no, well, you have no Republican. You have yeah, I right. did when you interviewed me. Oh, is that? Okay, so that's I, yeah. so James is ready yeah. to go. Um, I think that a Republican that I really like um, – who was the the football Jack Kemp? Jack Kemp was yeah, a really Jack great Kemp. Republican. Yeah, no, all good guys. Great. All right. Couldn't win a Super Bowl. Well, couldn't win the vice presidency. On that Still note, I also like Linda Lingle. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Do you know who that is? Hawaii, uh-huh. former Hawaii yeah, governor. Hawaii, yeah, yeah, she was terrific. Yeah, you just you like alliteration? You like the tan? Or? No, she she just had really interesting things to say. About running as a Republican in a very, very blue state and winning. And I just thought she was, she, she had wonderful insights and, uh, I just thought a lot of her. I actually, I was on Capitol Hill for the, for the fall of 2010. And that's right when Charles DeJoux had won because there was two Democrats that were running in that special election and he, they each split the Democrat vote. Oh. So he won with 37% of the vote or whatever. And so. A Republican got to serve in Congress for like three months from Hawaii, but his staff was, they just had some of the coolest stories and some of, yeah, obviously the most horrific, like, yeah, our state is as blue as blue can be, but you, you elect somebody who's a Republican and it was, it, you end up having some good stories out of it. All right. No song. <laughs> end the podcast. Gentlemen, <laughs> thank thank you. you so much for coming. Thanks guys. And listeners, talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlowski. Lauren Christensen is our producer. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts.